are trying to read an educational research article, you may have quickly become overwhelmed with all of the new words, the statistics, and not really been sure where to begin. Well, today my guest is Nate Hansford from Pedagogy Non Grata, and he's going to give us the one-on-one on how to read educational research. Welcome back to the Science of Special Education podcast. Today, I have Nathaniel Hansford. Do you prefer Nathaniel or Nate? Uh, Nate. Nate. Yeah. <laughs> I got Nate Hansford here with me today. Um, I'm going to stop and just let you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of became interested in this space that you're in here with, with research. Yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a school teacher. I um, uh, A couple of years ago, I was working in a, a tough school, for lack of a better word. Um, it was far in the north of Canada, and uh, I felt like it was um, negatively influenced by some institutional racism factors, and uh, the students were far behind academically, and I um, started to do a very small amount of research on how to best to help my students, as I'm sure many teachers have done in the past, and I went and did some uh, additional qualification courses. I got my specialist in reading and in special education. Um, but as I was going through the courses, I noticed that my professors, they never really had citations to support the claims they were making. They're often making really strong um, claims um, without any evidence to support what they were saying. Uh, a one that was really sh shocking and surprising to me, I had a textbook and the professor supported this idea that early reading instruction caused brain damage. And I thought that just can't be true. That just doesn't sound right. That sounds crazy. Um, and I like look through the textbook for a citation. There's no textbook a citation in the textbook. And, um, uh, I tried to like look up my studies on my own time to find citation for this. And I found nothing. Um, uh, truthfully later on, I actually ended up talking to Dr. Timothy Shanahan about this and he, he confirmed my hypothesis that it was complete bunk and made up. But, um, I just felt like that was really common in my courses. Um, and I grew sort of frustrated with that phenomenon. And I noticed that a lot of what's going on in the, the teaching community at the time was not particularly evidence-based without a lot of ideas that were popular. When I, I tried to like look for studies on them, they didn't seem to have studies or support. And then the studies that were out there seemed to show the opposite of what people were commonly claiming. Um, and I, I just thought it was a really weird thing where there's this strange disconnect between um, science and what we thought was science. And uh, I started, I co-started a podcast um, called Pedagogy Non Grata. And that, that podcast really just dove into this idea of this, and that means science not welcome. Um, and just dove into this idea of, you know, why is there a disconnect between what the science is showing and what we're being told the science is. Um, and that led to, to starting a blog on, on the topic. And um, um, four years later, um, I now have uh, two books out on that topic and a, a third coming out soon. And I'm going to be honest, probably more are coming um, and a couple hundred articles written. At one point, I had a couple hundred podcast episodes on the topic, although I've actually gone back and deleted quite a few over the years, um, just because uh, my own ability to do research has really evolved over this time. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm constantly going back and revisiting things I've previously said to try and reach a new understanding. And I think um, even when I first started, I think I lacked a lot of nuance in what I was saying. And I've, I'm always trying to feel, feel out how nuance fits into these conversations of 
what is the science of teaching and uh yeah just trying to find out uh, on a i'm on a journey for truth for lack of a better term i love that and i love how you said that um your own you know ability to look at the research and, and investigate that has has evolved because i think that when teachers start delving into the research this is not something that you're really taught how to do in undergrad no. um it's overwhelming, right? Like you start yeah. looking at things and I always tell people, you could probably find a research article to back up anything out there somewhere. Um, so trying to figure out that is really difficult. Yeah, and I, I, I completely agree. So I've actually written several articles, both on my my blog and other people's blogs um, on this topic of how do you read research? Because you're right, you can find an academic article, not even just a blog post, you could find an academic article on any topic that supports your opinion. In fact, there are articles out there that say the, the pyramids were built by aliens. Here's the scientific proof for it. Um, and you have to, I think, have some basic level science literacy to be able to spot the difference between what is legitimate and what is not. Um, and it does take some time to do. And I'm passionate about trying to, one of the way I write articles about trying to like promote science literacy at the same time. So I try to make, I try to write my process of how I looked up the information, how I found the information and why I made the decision I did to say what was evidence-based or not evidence-based. Although that can be a problematic um, phrasing too, um, because I want people to be more literate because I think we have this problem education where um, we sort of look to leaders to tell us what is the science rather than being literate and reading the science for ourselves. And I get the attraction to that because reading science is hard. Um, but the, the disadvantage is that usually the people who become the most prolific and look to as these leaders in the field, they're not necessarily the people who are actually the most qualified. They're often the people who are just the best at marketing, the most charismatic. Um, and they sometimes provide narratives that are either untrue or overly simplified. Um, so I think it's really important that we build that literacy into our, our teachers and to our academic training system for teachers. Yeah. One of the things that I really like that you've done on uh, in, in your books, but also on your blog and some of those articles as well is kind of break down some of those basic types of research that, you know, teachers will run into um, when they're looking at that. Can you kind of just give us an idea of what some of those basic types of research things they might run into when they're reading through those articles? Some of them have some fancy terms <laughs> that people yeah. might not be familiar with. There's, I mean, there's so many out there um, and there's, if you, you really break dive into it deeper, you'll find that there's subsets of subsets of subsets of types of research. Um, but there are a couple of really basic ones. So uh, most research in education is gonna be what's called qualitative. Um, and there's lots of different types of qualitative research. One of them might be a researcher sits in a classroom, they make observations and then they write down what they find. Um, and that has value. Um, there are people who might criticize that type of research. It has value, it has a place. It helps us to generate hypotheses and it helps us to sort of talk about what might make a strategy work better. Um, and it might help to get some nuance into a conversation. You know, uh, you might be able to say, hey, this worked best for most of the students, but there was this one student who was an exception and we found this helped this student who was the exception. Qualitative research is great for that, about describing how it worked for the individual student in your class. The qualitative student our studies are really weak at being objectively analyzing research for efficacy. And when I say efficacy, like, does this work well or does it work better than other ideas? Uh, and that's really my main area of interest. The, the next um, type of study that you 
um, are likely to find is something called a case study. Um, this is a, an experimental type of study, but it's like the weakest form. Um, and case studies are really popular because they're really cheap. Anyone can really do a case study um, because you're looking at typically one class at a time or you're looking at data retrospectively. And um, uh, typically it's you know measuring the amount of learning that happened in a year for one class, which sounds great in principle. Um, but the problem with relying on this is we're not measuring for what's called the magnitude of effect. And I know that's kind of like a big word, but you know we expect students to learn in a year. So if I do a study on my class and I say, hey, kids learned this much this year, they did amazing. Well, one, yeah, I could have had a bright class. And two, you expect them to learn. What we want to know is, did this research item improve learning outcomes? And the way we test this hypothesis is we take one class where we give them the treatment, whatever it is, and we take another class of a similar population and we don't give it to them and we see if there was an improvement and how much of an improvement there was. And that's how we, we want to measure results. So when we look at studies that have this control group that allows us to more accurately measure the impact of uh, an intervention, um, there's two types, uh, and that is quasi-experimental, and that's where we did not randomize the groups. And truly experimental, or RCTs, have a randomization process. And ideally, part of that randomization process should make sure that the students in both groups are equivalent. So we want to have the same starting place and scores in both groups, um, ideally speaking, so that we know that the reason the, the end result that one class does better is not because they had better students in it or, or, or more intelligent students, but rather because the intervention worked. Um, and that's usually the highest form of experimental study. And then we have several different types of uh, studies that are actually studies of studies um, that are meant to um, take this information from a large scale and bring it into you know, what is actually all of the science showing. And it's really, really important to look at these types of studies because uh, oftentimes um, studies that don't have their results replicated or they when they do have it replicated, um, it doesn't show the same results. Even like really high quality studies sometimes will show completely different results on in the same factors, um, which means that one study on its own in education isn't really a reliable source of information. So. It's really interesting for a researcher or someone like me who's a nerd to read through an RCT and try and find findings. But I would probably, in most cases, strongly recommend against individual teachers looking at one study to try and garner information for how they should teach, unless they're prepared to go read all RCTs on that, that subject, because you don't really know if those results were meaningful unless you've seen it being, re being replicated and you wanna be looking at all the studies. But luckily we have studies that do that for you. And there's two main types to do that. There's a, a systematic literature review. That's where someone reads all the studies and they qualitatively describe what they found in those. That's sort of what was more popular in the past. More commonly now we see something called a meta-analysis, which has the researcher take the average results of the actual experiments and synthesize them into effect sizes, which are standardized percentages um, to show you like how much learning actually happened as a result of these interventions. And, and there's limitations to every type of study, but typically I think it's better for teachers to read a meta-analysis than it would be safe for them to read a case study or an experimental paper or even a qualitative paper, because it's gonna tell them what does most of the science show on a topic? Um, and it's gonna give them a much more comprehensive 
overview of the science very quickly than say um, reading one paper would. And you've spent a lot of time kind of creating some of these meta-analysis like, uh, you know, compilations, um, looking at different topics of research. I encourage everyone to, and we'll link it in the show notes, head over to your blog because you've got a lot of um, individual topics where you've kind of looked at these and looked at all the studies and tried to find the best studies to, to kind of look at and, and figure out what's what's kind of what the trends are, what we're seeing. One of the ones you recently posted that I was really interested in just with my own science of reading um, interest was on how often, how fast we should be introducing, you know, phonics concepts. Can you just tell us a little bit about that particular um, research that you looked into? Yeah, it was, uh, it's actually the, the first large scale meta-analysis I did and I haven't peer reviewed it yet. So take it with a grain of salt because of that. Um, but what we did is we looked at, um, and this was a reanalysis of this actually, but we looked at how many graphene phoneme correspondences were taught or introduced in a month. And just to be clear, that is letter sound relationships. So um, it's different from saying sounds because if I say, well, we taught the, the cuss sound, there's multiple letters that can represent that, that sound. Um, we, rep we counted every time you taught a letter or a combination of letters teaching a sound as one. We didn't count, say, if you taught K as C and CK um, as, as uh, one sound, we counted that as two. Um, so we looked at it to see if there was an impact on outcomes of research um, when you looked at uh, how many letter sound combinations were taught in a month. And my hypothesis was that the, the faster the scope and sequence, well, the more letter sound combinations you taught in a month, the higher on average learning would be. My thought process was that um, it would allow students more access to the phoneme or the phonics code faster, which allows them to apply that code. And this is important in my mind because um, you can't decode words or a large number of words if you only have a handful of sounds that you've learned. Um, unfortunately for me, my hypothesis didn't like bear out particularly correct um, because there was an upper limit. And in fact, we saw more like a curved, like an upside down U. Um, on the graph, if you if you plot on a line graph, where if you were teaching too slow, you got terrible results, and then if you're teaching around this middle point, you got really high results, and then if you started to introduce more and more, those results started to go down over time, um, which was kind of surprising to me, but in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. Um, we call this a sort of dose relationship. Um, if you were to look at any almost any dosage study, you would see the same phenomenon. So if you, if you were taking vitamin C, for example, I don't know if vitamin C is particularly effective, to be fair, I'm not a, a, um, someone who studies vitamins, but uh, you would probably see uh, the same type of pattern where if you took a very small dosage of vitamin C, there was no per perceivable benefit. And if you took like a medium dose, there was a benefit. And if you took way too much, you got sick and the benefit went away. Um, it's, it's sort of the same, same idea. I was surprised actually by the effective range. We found that the ideal range was between six to 15 graphing phoneme correspondences a month. Um, and I, I say I was surprised because it was a wider range than I would guess. And the range might be larger even. I can get talked about that in a second. But we found that studies that occurred um, that had taught less than five or five or less sounds in a month or did not show um, significant results, generally speaking. Um, which again, it makes sense because that's that like one 
graphene phonium correspondent per week. I think that's a, a not a good scope and sequence for one, because I think students are capable of learning way more than one per week. Um, and, and two, it's just, you're not gonna give them a large access to the code. But even as little as six showed high results. And that might, that seems kind of counterintuitive because if you break that down from six a month actually only works out to one and a half graphene phoneme correspondences a week. But what it might be is that you teach some, you know, um, two a week and you teach some one a week, depending on the difficulty of them. So for example, that R sound, I know a lot of students really struggle with the difference between saying R at the beginning of a word or R at the end of the word. And there's a couple of different ways we could talk about that, but it makes a very different sound based on the letters that are put in combination with it. So that, that might take longer for students to learn and you might spend a week teaching an R sound. Whereas um, the idea that you're gonna teach like the A sound with the letter A and you're gonna spend an entire week on it, maybe that doesn't make as much sense because it's a more simpler sound or even more simple B. B is like, it almost always makes the exact same sound. So it, it's, it doesn't make sense that you would spend a long amount of time on it. Um, whereas others, you might. We found at the upper range being 15, um, but there, there, it might be a little higher because there was a lot of studies that were in that um, 10 to 15 range of phonics sounds per month. Um, and there was a lot of studies that were in this 25 plus range per month, but there were none in between 25 and 15. So it could actually be the 20, which works out to be five, on average five sounds um, uh, a week might um, actually be the most effective. But we don't know that because we didn't have any studies in that particular range. So all I can say with confidence is that um, studies that are below 25 um, letter sounds per week do better and studies that are above six um, do better. That's it. That's important. I think looking at the studies in that meta-analysis kind of viewpoint allows not necessarily like a prescriptive, like I have to do this, but it allows teachers, if they took a look at your blog post, read through that, they could say, man, I've been doing letter of the week, right? And I've been yeah. spending a week on the letter B and it takes us, you know, half the year to get through just the basic, you know, alphabet. They can right away say, okay, this, I may, might need to switch it up. Let me try something a little bit different. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to do exactly, you know, the study said I had to do X, Y, and Z, but it gives you a general idea of, you know, some things that maybe you could change some things you might be able to look at, maybe some things you want to look into a little bit more. Um, maybe you yeah. see some of those studies and say, I want to just dive into a couple of these studies in the six to 15 range and see what they were they were doing. But having mm -hmm. that um, kind of baseline from, from someone like you who's taking a look at everything, I think is really helpful for teachers, especially because they're busy. <laughs> yeah, and I think the thing to remember about meta-analysis, it, it, it's going to tell you what works the best on average. And that's not necessarily what works the best on individual cases. Um, and to give a sort of a more specific example with this analysis, we did other analyses to detect what was the level of randomness between these results and what was the level of like correlation. And we found that the results for classroom were really non-random, that it, we, there was like a direct correlation between increasing the speed of phonics and getting higher results. But that um, when we looked at the same research for intervention settings, we did not find the same thing. We found that there was a higher, much higher degree of volatility and randomness in the results, which makes sense because 
you, you work with students who have intellectual disabilities sometimes, as you, you were telling me earlier in the conversation, those students might have more difficulties learning multiple sounds in a week than a student who has, you know, is just a struggling reader. So it might be that you have to really identify the individual needs of your students. And, and truthfully, we found the same results for intervention, that it was the same thing that worked best in that middle range. But the, the, the degree of confidence that I can have in those results is much lower because the correlation was much weaker. Earlier, and I'm wondering if you could just take a second to explain what teachers should be looking for is effect sizes. So a lot of times, especially those quantitative research studies are very overwhelming because there's numbers everywhere. And one of the things you often see are these effect sizes, and it doesn't mean much to somebody who doesn't know. So what is that and what should people be looking for? So an effect size is a, a it's basically it's a standardized percentage. Um, so what it does is it, it takes... Um, the mean difference and tries to correct for randomness and variability. It tries to remove some of the noise because we expect there to be some noise in statistics. Um, and it allows you to compare, the point is it allows you to compare results across studies, especially if there's a control group. And I, I say that because if we have a control group and we use an effect size, what we're actually doing to some extent is we're controlling for time. Because like I said earlier in the conversation, you expect your students to learn over time. So what we should be looking for is how much does that improve? So by using an effect size and comparing to a control group, we control for that really big variable of time. And we also control for another really big variable of randomness. And it, it doesn't do, no statistic is gonna be able to perfectly control for every factor. And you know something I'm doing increasingly more is using multiple types of statistics to help correct for that. But generally speaking, an effect size is used as the sort of gold standard for measuring efficacy or magnitude of effect or results, not mean difference. So mean difference is something that gets reported on the media a lot. And that's kind of problematic because it doesn't correct for these variables of time or, or variability. Um, and uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say we look at a study and we say 20% improvement. Well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on the context. And for example, if you're talking about teaching kids in pre-K their letters, well, kids in pre-K start off knowing zero letters on average, and there's 26 letters. So if you saw a mean difference in the average kid in the class knew one letter, you would have like a 26-fold increase or a 2,600% increase in learning. Sounds fantastic. It's the greatest study result of all time. And if you're teaching trigonometry to grade 12 students who are coming in with a very high level of knowledge, and they're dealing with very difficult material you might look and see like a 7% increase in learning. Um, and realistically, neither of these percentages are telling you anything. Um, what you need to be able to do is show how meaningful the impact of your intervention was. And that's what an effect size does. And it's basically, there's a lot of different kinds of effect sizes. So, uh, but the most common ones are, are Cohen's D and Hedges G. I would say probably 90% of education research is gonna use those two. And um, what they are measuring or how they can be interpreted is the same as a percent. And we have sort of benchmarks that we use. Generally speaking, um, below 0.4 or 40% is viewed as um, low. Below 0.2 or 20% is negligible. And when we say negligible, what we really mean is the result is so small that we can't be sure that that improvement is actually due to the intervention or just random noise. Um, and results that are 
above 0.79 are considered high or 80%. Makes sense. It's, it's an A. 40% is a D. Um, these percentages uh, or corrected, mean corrected percentages, standardized percentages work on this principle. Um, that said, in general, you'll find different contexts create slightly different effect sizes. So in reading, we tend to see very low effect sizes compared to math. Um, and I think there's, that's due to two reasons. One, we usually use standardized assessments more in reading, which tends to lower results because it's more accurate. And um, we also, uh, it might be a less of a concrete skill, so it might be more difficult to teach than math, actually. Um, so personally, I tend to view anything above 0 0.40 in reading as a really good sign that this thing works, especially if we have multiple high quality studies showing that. Whereas in math, I, I'm typically looking for something a little bit higher um, before I'm thinking, hey, this, is, this looks really good. That's really helpful information, I think, for people. And what would you say if a teacher is just starting and I want to start to looking at some research, what are some tips you would give them if they're just starting out? How can they kind of start looking into things on their own? They're hearing some things that they're like, eh, I'm not quite sure if that's what I should be doing. Where should they start? Yeah, I think it is difficult to start. I have um, a couple of articles on my website that are specifically meant to help people um, learn how to read research. I, they're, they're about 10 pages. I don't think they're that hard. I think it's a good place to start. If you want to increase your basic level of literacy, um, I would generally speaking, um, avoid taking strong conclusions, especially from small numbers of studies or individual studies. And that's sort of a, I, I I'm going to admit is a bit of a pet peeve of mine in any space in the education world, you will see people make really strong claims. And when I see people make really strong claims, alarm bells kind of go off in my head because I'm thinking, okay, where is their citation to prove this? It's, it's generally speaking really hard to prove things like has to and never. If someone says all students has to have this and all students should never have this, uh, that becomes really hard to prove on a scientific level. Um, I think it makes sense to try to, to look to meta-analysis um, a really, and it also makes sense to look to, to really good writers who are also scientists. So if you're in the reading world, um, I highly recommend anyone read Tim Shanahan's blog. His, he's, I would say one of the leading researchers in the world on reading science. And, um, he writes in a very conversational way that's easy to read, but he also like explains where he's getting the information from as he goes through. And I know uh, personally, I've learned a lot more about research just from reading his blog. Um, you could always read mine. It's probably more dense than, than Shanahan's. Um, another really good person to look to is, um, oh, the speed of sound. I'm trying to think of the, the author's name. It's, it's just slipped my memory. Seidenberg. So I was going to say, it starts with an S. <laughs> yes, Seidenberg's blog <laughs> is great. It's another one that I think is really um, reliant on research. And I, I would look for the receipts. And I, I call it the receipts asking, what is the meta-analysis data show? What, what are the results of those studies? And then when you look at meta-analysis, you do have to be careful um, that the quality of meta-analysis is high. Generally speaking, I would avoid reading correlational meta-analyses. That's where we look at correlation, not intervention. I don't want to get into that right now because I feel like it'll confuse the reader or the listener, sorry. I'm used to talking through writing. Um, and I would avoid studies that don't specifically exclude studies that don't have control groups. Um, 
I really like John Hattie's um, website, Hattie Meta X, um, and it, it'll summarize all of the meta analyses on basically every topic in existence in education or close to. Um, and you have to be careful with his blog or his his because he he gives you a mean average of all the meta analyses on a topic if you just look at it on the surface, and that can be dangerous because different contexts produce different results. So if you have like a correlational meta-analysis in there and one that's on university students and one that's on pre-K students, it's not going to be as reliable in terms of that average effect. But you can actually click on the intervention now on his website and it'll show you every meta-analysis ever done. And that's a really useful thing um, because it'll also show you the effect and the, the target population. So for example, if you look at inquiry-based learning and you click on John Hattie's blog and you click on inquiry-based learning, it'll show you all the inquiry-based learning meta-analyses. And you'll get to see that almost all of them are on university students studying science. Um, and yet you see a high effect size, but that high effect size doesn't really apply to pre-K and kindergarten learning math because it's a completely different context. Um, similarly, if you click on phonics, um, you can see that uh, we have um, large results for the most part across over a dozen studies. And that's really useful information too, because it helps you show like, hey, this has been replicated over and over and over and over again. And we can see that phonics research is continuously shown to be effective. So uh, I think Hattie gets flack sometimes because um, he is taking an average of all the meta-analyses. They're not necessarily comparable always, um, but it is such a great database if you just wanna look at, hey, what have all the studies shown and look at the, the context. But you have to be willing to, to dive a little deeper. I wouldn't just look at a mean effect size and be like, it's all done. That number's high or that number's low. I know everything I need to know. You have, you have to look a, a little deeper than that. <laughs> I want to piggyback on that dive a little bit deeper. I don't know if you've seen this, but one of the things that I, once I started looking at research that I really noticed is a lot of times I would read through a blog post or some you know Facebook post and somebody would cite something. And I'm like, yes. oh, that sounds great. And then you go and read what they cited. And I'm like, that's not what it said at all. <laughs> or they really yeah. took it and twisted it to, you know, they took one line out of it and twisted it. Um, so I think yeah. that that's important that dive a little bit deeper. <laughs> piece yeah. And and I, I think citations, it can be a dangerous thing in the sense that um, like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, you can find an academic citation to support anything, but you have to make sure that the, the type of citation can be used to make the type of argument that's being made. So if somebody's making a really strong argument, like I have discovered the greatest way to teach reading and it, it, it's you have to have um, orange sunglasses on as the kids reading. Well, then you should want to see some really strong evidence because one, that sounds crazy. And two, uh, it's a strong claim. Um, and if you see like a case study or like a correlational study or like um, just a theoretical paper that actually doesn't have an experiment to support it, well, then, you know, OK, this claim doesn't isn't supported by the citation. Um, but if you see like, oh, they've listed four meta-analyses that show the same thing, that's a little harder to argue with. And I, I think it's important to understand what the level of rigor behind the citation actually is and not just be like, oh, there's an academic citation. They must be right. That's the end of the conversation. One more thing for uh, teachers who are kind of beginning to look at this. I know for me, I have access to a lot of places where I can get research, but for the average teacher who's maybe not in grad school and doesn't have access to some of these libraries, is there anywhere that you have found that they can kind of go and, and look for research on their own? Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to kind of sound as a slightly repetitive here, but um, I think like one thing you can do is you can go to Google Scholar. Another thing you can do is you, which is a completely free database, although not all the articles on it will be free. Um, you can go um, to company websites if you're looking at like a specific product in education to see like what is their research. Most companies will show their research. And if they don't have research, that's a bad sign. Um, um, although it, not every company that doesn't have research is, is doing something wrong. It's just, it, there's no study to prove what they're saying. Um, in terms of research, I think it's also great if you look at John Hattie's website, MetaX, because you have a database there to, I don't know, a couple thousand meta-analyses and you don't have to pay any money to use that. It's completely free. And then looking to people who, who are quoting research and showing the receipts for the research, like Seidenberg, like um, Timothy Shanahan, and if I'm allowed to say, like myself, um, then you can have you can see the research that's been summarized to you. Of course, the danger of going to my website or Shanahan's website or Seidenberg's website, and I'm not trying to compare myself to them because they're much more accomplished scholars <laughs> than I am, um, is that you're reading the summary of research by somebody else. Um, so you always run the risk that the person has incorrectly summarized that research. Um, so it does help to have a library card and have access to, to read the studies for yourself. And you can also check the abstract. You know, sometimes just looking at the abstract yeah. because a study abstract will summarize the results. Um, that said, I'm not a huge fan of just reading an abstract uh, because um, it's sort of the, the Cole's notes of the article written by the author. And researchers in general have one bad habit of they always like to upsell the importance of their own work. And that's... I feel terrible saying that, but nobody wants to come out and say, my study proved nothing. They want to say, my study proved everything, no matter what the result was. I've even seen results where the researcher had negative effect sizes and then claimed that this categorically proves they're right and that the intervention worked. And it's like, you had negative results. You really can't claim that. Um, so it, it is better to read the full the full article for yourself rather than to say, just read the abstract, but it is an option. Yeah, and one of the things I've recommended to people to do as well is if they're on Google Scholar, they find some of those ones that they like, they read the abstract, but it's not free. Um, mm -hmm. If it's a current researcher, most of them are on Twitter and most of them are allowed to email you a copy of the paper. Um, so reaching out is always a good you know, option. Um, I have found them to be extremely helpful. Um, reaching out to some of those researchers to just say, hey, I saw you did a study on this. It you know, looked really interesting. And usually they'll offer to send it to me before I even ask for it. Um, so they're usually allowed to send you a, a special you know, copy um, as well. So that's an option you know, for people if you find one that really seems to be right on target with what you're looking for. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I don't know why I didn't think of saying that. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw it in there. You gave a lot of good ones. I also um, highly recommend all of the different blogs and researchers that you talk to as well. I think they they have really great information on all of those. And Shanahan, especially, um, you mentioned earlier, but is very easy to read, which I think is important when you're when you're just starting out. He's very easy to read, and I find he's very neutral too. Yes. Uh, and you, you, as much as it's okay to have an opinion when you write down research, you shouldn't be trying to prove your opinion. You should be just trying to express what does the current body of research show? And he's very good about that. Well, um, Nate, you did an amazing job of <laughs> just kind of summarizing things. I think giving people just a basic overview of what to look for. And I always tell people, you're not gonna jump in and do it all at once. So kind of just yeah. maybe start with one research study, read through it, 
stop at all those big terms or those numbers, those different, you know, statistics that don't make sense and look them up and just start there and start learning bit by bit. I'm sure you would say it takes a while <laughs> to really, to really get the hang of it. I've been, I've been writing about research for four years and um, I'm consistently learning and improving. And I often go back and read something I wrote in the past and cringe not usually because it's like factually incorrect, but like the level of strength uh, behind my claim versus the level of research behind it. I'm like, no, what did I do? Why wasn't there more nuance? And even truthfully, uh, even as little as this year, I was recently re reading an article I wrote in January and I was like, oh no, you, you <laughs> put way too strong of claims and you had nowhere near enough evidence for that. Um, and it's just, it's a continuous learning journey. Um, even amongst researchers, you see You've seen, if you read studies that were done 20 years ago and you compare them to studies done today, yes. there's a massive improvement in education studies because it's a process for everyone. And there's no, there's no easy way to just skip on into it because it's, it takes time. So if people want to connect with you further, learn a little bit more, where can they do that? Uh, they can visit my blogs, um, teachingbyscience.com or pedagogynongrata.com. They can um, check me out on Twitter at Nate Joseph, um, or they can uh, follow us on Facebook, which is Pedagogy Non Grata. Um, whenever I post a new article, I always put it to both our Twitter and uh, Facebook feed. And uh, your books, they can get those on Amazon? You can, um, but uh, you're, you're kind of getting the scoop on this, but you're, by the time this is out, they're probably not going to be available, actually, oh. because... I am in negotiation with a publishing company. Excellent. <laughs> is, okay. I originally self-published those books and there's a publishing company that's come along and wants to publish them. So I'm in the final stages of negotiation. Okay, so once perfect. that contract is signed, that will be pulling my books off of Amazon. So okay, perfect. So they can, I'm is, sure you'll uh, announce on your blog where they can buy yeah. those when they're out. Okay, awesome. Well, I want to thank you again. It was a pleasure talking to you. Hope we can have you back some other time and dive a little bit more into some of these because I think people would definitely be interested. I'd be happy to do that.